0: You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. So this is a poem that has an epigraph from the AskMen.com guide to why men date difficult women. God knows there are difficult women out there, women who are at times shallow, bitchy, selfish, dishonest, and of course, crazy. Difficult. Difficult women don't care what time it is. They're crowding the bus stop with their difficult bodies, refusing to budge for the light. Or in the parks, dragging their difficulty behind them like a fat dog. Some of them are running, cycling, or worse, driving cars. If a difficult woman hits you at 30 miles per hour, you have a 50% chance of survival. At home, difficult women are more like walls than windows, but if you lean on one, you fall straight through, and sometimes at night they show your face. Difficult women don't know they're born. Difficult women don't know the meaning of the word. There could be one folded into your newspaper, holding her breasts like oranges. There might be one carrying your coffee or moving to your road. In London, it's said you're never more than six feet from a difficult woman. Have you or a colleague had a difficult woman in the last six months? If so, you may be entitled to compensation. Do you have difficulty with our questions? Are you afraid you may be difficult yourself? Hello and welcome
1: to another edition of the Scottish Poetry Library podcast. My name is Colin Waters, and it's my pleasure this week to introduce an interview with the poet Helen Mort. Helen came to the library on a somewhat grey Sunday morning in August while in Edinburgh for the book festival and it was a real pleasure to meet her and to talk about her new collection, No Maps Could Show Them, which was published by Chatwin and Windus earlier this year. Helen was born in 1985 and she gave plenty of notice from an early age that she was going to be a writer to watch. She was a five times winner of the Foyle Young Poets Award. She received an Eric Gregory Award in 2007 and she won the Manchester Poetry Prize slash Young Writer Prize in 2008. Her debut collection, Division Street, was published in 2013 and it was shortlisted for the Costa Book Awards and the T.S. Eliot Prize. Her interests, as you'll hear uh, during the course of this podcast, include rock climbing and running, both of which inspire poems in her new collection. Helen, I wanted to start by asking about the theme of the new collection. Uh, no map could show them. I think it's—is it fair to say it's a, a large number of the poems are about reclaiming the history of women climbers?
0: I think I'm just been very interested in not just women necessarily, but pe- people whose stories haven't been celebrated enough, kind of unsung heroes, in if, if for want of a, a better term. But yeah, I've mostly been focusing on maybe women's stories in the, the climbing world think about how all the narratives that I grew up with when I started reading climbing literature as a child were very much um, male heroics it was the, the the white spider and touching the void and things like that and having got interested in some of the slightly lesser known stories that are starting to come to the fore now people like Dorothy Pilly um, and uh, some of the climbers of her era I kind of wanted to try and maybe celebrate as the... Is, is the wrong word, but try and um, explore those a bit and look at them again.
1: I'm someone who gets out of your puff, you know, climbing up the stairs to my flat. So what's what's the appeal of mountaineering? What is it about it that, that inspires you?
0: Um, I've got to say, I should start by um, by saying that I'm not a very good climber, and I'm certainly not a mountaineer, really. I'm, I'm more of a hill walker and rock climber. Uh, so I'm most, mostly um, climbing single-pitch rock climbs in the Peak District where I grew up. But I've always been really drawn to the focus that climbing gives you, the intense kind of concentration that I get when I'm on a route where I can't think about anything but the next foothold or the next handhold or the next ledge or trying to read the route. And I think reading a route is an interesting way of putting it because it does remind me of the focus I get when I'm either absorbed in a poem as a reader or as a writer. There's something about that intense focus or that, that way of being immersed in what you're doing that... Reminds me of what I love about poetry and why the act of writing is so is so all consuming as well. It's something that I think through, and, and those landscapes are uh, landscapes that I think through as well. Stanage Edge and that particular part of Derbyshire, the Hope Valley, has always been, it's felt like my writing landscape, the place I go to to clarify my mm-hmm. thoughts, I guess. It's not just about the physicality of it.
1: So, you also do a lot of running, and I was going to ask if, yeah. if, if running and climbing. Are to you what walking is to Wordsworth and Coleridge?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, well, it's anything, isn't it? When you know, some people talk about getting inspiration when they're running for a bus or when they wait. It's anything that um, that sort of sidetracks you just enough to let the unconscious ideas mm-hmm. filter through. And uh, particularly with running, I think having that rhythm, having your the rhythm of your footsteps, or that kind of sense of progress, um, kind of brings out lines. It, I, I like to write by by the ear really, by sound, so I'll, I'll get a rhythm and kind of try and build up the lines from that, which I guess is similar to kind of walking meditation, or yeah, the kind of thing that Wordsworth would have done. Um, sometimes the only trouble is if you've not quite finished the poem and you've finished your run, you have to go and do an extra lap. <laughs> so when I lived in Grassmere, um, thinking about Wordsworth in some of his walks, I'd have to do an extra loop of Grassmere Lake until I'd got the, the couplet and the sonnet, or the turn, or whatever it was. Shall we read a poem? Sure. Um,
1: What about the very, very first poem? Uh, The one that's actually, it's almost like a prologue, isn't it? Um, Yes. It doesn't actually have a title unless the title is the the title of the collection.
0: Yeah, I decided to... Um, I wrote this po- The poem was originally called No Map, I think, but I like the idea of starting with a poem unbidden, almost like it is a preface or a sort of way into the into the book. Um, and I wanted it to set the theme for the collection, I suppose, thinking about things that... Um, not just about hidden stories, but things that, that, that um, the landscape holds for you that it might not hold for someone else. I think a poem that's been hugely influential for me is um, Evan Boland's that the science of cartography mm. is limited I guess if this book has a guiding presence or a, a poem that's behind it, I feel like it's that one, it's mm. the idea that landscapes remember um, and people remember through them uh, but you couldn't chart it or you couldn't no. whether that's a, a story or a feeling that you get from somewhere, kind of psychogeography I guess Yeah, yeah, vibrations No map can show you, but you're in every line. There, like the underground stream and the once worked mine. You're the last fence in England, everything most northerly. Your scale's unknowable, your permanence is watery. You're as thin as a bulrush, as scattered as rapeseed. Your body a contour line we once knew how to read. Due west, due east, you are X marks the spot. We plot you from memory with our eyes tight shut. You're a reference with no grid. The point C forgets land. I know you at arm's length, like the back of my hand. And I guess I was also interested in that idea that comes out at the end that um, sometimes you can both. Know something incredibly well and feel like you're distant, and I always get that with with familiar landscapes. Mm. You feel like you you've mapped every bit of it, but at the same time, it's utterly mysterious to you. Kind of like people yes. that you know well as well. There's always something to find out. I guess.
1: Um, so I, what one of the many interesting things I found about the collection was stories of women mountaineers. Yeah. And even beyond the stories, the conditions under which you had to climb, yeah. and and so one of the early poems, an, e- um, an Easy Day for a Lady. It was kind of sort of hilarious in, in, a, in an awful way, wasn't it? Because there's a quote, there's a really great quote at the start yeah. of it, um, about how basically there's a mountain that official climbers are, are no longer considering a mountain because two women <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. climbed
0: it. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? That, that, um if a woman's capable of doing something, then that diminishes the achievement. Yeah, I think you have to laugh at some of those attitudes. You almost have to send them up. And I think I've tried to do that a little bit in in this book. Often when things make me angry, humour is the best consolation as far as I'm concerned. You can just point out the ridiculousness of it. Things have changed a lot for the better. But there can be still, especially in sport, um, there can still be a bit of an undercurrent about things. like that. I see it as, in, as a competitive long-distance runner. You still get things like... You know, I've I've done a, a fell race um, recently where somebody talked about how humiliating it was um, to be what he called chicked, which is where you're overtaken <laughs> by some of the leading women in the race as a male runner. There's an um, actual term for this. Yeah, it's to to be chicked, and then he said this to myself and one of the other women who were at the who were leading in the the women's race and were overtaking some of the men, and you know that's the, that's not that far away from this idea of. Of uh, now the mountains has been climbed by two women, it's not worth doing it. So, and obviously, those things are hilarious, but yeah. they still happen. And I think, um, yeah, humour is our best defence against the utter ridiculousness. Yes, I think like so.
1: That. I mean, the, the other thing that's hilarious, uh, and hilarious, struck awful, mm. is the fact that women climbers were expected back in, so it's the 19th century we're mm. talking about, it, isn't it? To basically climb in crinolines and the full sort of Victorian lady garb.
0: Yeah, there's a great story. I forget which climber it was now, actually, but there's a great story about um, one woman who used to um, she'd wear a crinoline, but she'd have a pair of trousers underneath. So she'd she'd take off the crinoline at the foot of the mountain, climb in her trousers, but put the crinoline back on again when she was at the bottom, so she could return to the town with her modesty and her reputation intact with the with the crinoline. And apparently once. Um, she got all the way back to I think it was Zermatt. She got all the way back to the town, only to realise that she'd left. Oh dear. You know, She's probably so <laughs> so. She's probably so excited by the climb she'd just done, and, and her mind was was still in the mountains. And she realised she'd left the crinoline behind and had to go all the way back just okay. for the sake of reputation. That's so there's something very interesting about presentation and outward appearance, and it and, and yeah, to, things for 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 women then, and perhaps. To some extent, I was all being much more about how you're seen and how you you appear visually in in that kind of way. I thought that was a really interesting metaphor for that. Were these early women
1: um, climbers? Was it just purely the passion of climbing that was drawing them on, or was there a sense that they were pushing out boundaries that they were challenging? Are they like forerunners of the suffragettes? Was there much crossover? with Yeah, the suffragettes?
0: there was quite a bit of crossover. So the, the, you get some people like um, there's a woman who is mentioned briefly in this book and. Um, she was called Fanny Bullock Workman, and she she was very vocal about her feminist politics, and she thought that um, mountaineering was an act of feminism, and it was a it was a statement. Other I think other people just um, just really loved the hills. That's what what interests me. I think um, whatever your motivation for doing that, whether it's it's believing that you just wanted to spend time in the landscapes that you loved, and there shouldn't be anything that would stop you from doing that, or whether it's kind of making a statement that the to reach the summit is to make a almost yeah like say like mm. the um, the suffragettes and that kind of movement. Um, it's still a political act, I think. Anyway, no yeah, matter yeah. no matter what, what what their reason for climbing was, and there was a lot of speculation. One of the things that, that comes up a lot in the literature of around that time is people interested in in, in why you know why if, sometimes if women want to climb mountains, perhaps they were missing something in their lives. There's <laughs> this implication that. What, what did they need from the mountains mm. that they weren't getting elsewhere? And I I think that's a really fascinating <laughs> kind of idea. It's what's fun. driving people? And, you know, that obsession continues now. And Alison Hargreaves, the contemporary mountaineer, who I've written quite a lot about mm. in this collection, I think there's far more... I mean, people are always interested um, in what drives climbers and that strange obsessive nature and there's always the implication that there might be something a bit wrong with them, that they want to keep going back and risking their lives in that way. But I think it's even more acute for for women, Mm. even so. So there's a lot of speculation about Alison Hargreaves and what made her want to take the risks that she did as a pioneering mountaineer.
1: And you've written a sequence of poems about Alison Hargreaves in this collection. When you started out in that, what was it that drew you to it? Was it the fact her life represented
0: something for you? I've always been absolutely fascinated with her as a figure, which seems strange in in some way because, as I said before, I'm I'm a really amateur climber. I'm not somebody who's out there taking huge I, I, I risk injury and you know possibly a bad fall. You could 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 have serious implications, but it's not the same stakes as as the stakes of high altitude mountaineering. Not not even remotely the same world. So it might seem strange to be so obsessed with with her life in that way but it's um, it's partly because she learned to climb in Derbyshire which is my as I said my imaginative landscape but also the place where I learned to climb but it was more reading her biography and, and feeling this strange sense of kinship or empathy in a way that you can with, with people you've never met and people who are no longer alive um, through their words or through their achievements um, and funnily enough I think it was partly because Alison's obsession with mountains and the way she felt that she could express herself and the way she felt like she was only truly herself when she was in those particular landscapes or when she was immersed in the activity of climbing reminds me of how I feel as a writer and how I've always felt about putting poetry at the centre of your life which again might seem like a strange comparison but I think anything that anything that's so all-consuming for you, anything that you've decided to put at the heart of your life that can seem selfish, that can exclude other things, that, that can, yeah, be that that sometimes even damaging focus, but that also gives your life meaning and mm. makes you feel that you're able to, to express yourself in a way that you're unable to in so much of the rest of life. I really identify with that as a writer as much as with the climbing itself and with mm the way she talks about it. And it's actually very moving reading how, especially as a teenager when, when she was starting to climb, how she yeah, how she becomes herself, I think, through through the mountains and how it's a way of stepping back from some of the other difficulties of her personal life and of her you know, interactions with other people and, and all that kind of stuff. I think it's it's very moving to, to read about her. Regions of the Heart is a fantastic um, biography. The Ed Douglas and David Rose book about Mm. Alison Hargreaves. It's compelling.
1: The the funny thing is when I was reading that sequence of poems, Mm. because I'm not a big mountaineering fan, um, I I was reading it and there was... I was thinking, oh, I recognise this name, where do I recognise it from? Mm-hmm. And I remembered it, it was because there had been, after she died, what year did she die? Was it 1995? Yes. Um, there was such a, a huge furore in, in the press. Um, the, the press, if I remember rightly, they seemed to be quite angry about the fact that she was a mother who yeah. died, and this was like a really reckless thing. And in mm-hmm. fact, I think maybe you mentioned it earlier, she she actually claimed uh was it was it K two
0: she claimed? She climbed the north face of the Iger when she was six months pregnant. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah she had two children and it's interesting because nobody I don't think anybody would particularly be aware that um, George Mallory was a father of three that's not something that really enters the, the narrative in that way whereas everyone knows that Alison Hargreaves was a mother mm. you know, the the debate after her death was, was around this issue should mothers climb mountains but perhaps not thinking to ask should fathers climb mountains um, and I'm very interested in, in that because I mean I think there are there are bigger questions to be asked, I know, and I have tried to write elsewhere in this book, particularly about Everest and mm. the 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 symbol that Everest has become for risk and um, in entitlement in some way the the entitlement to climb and conquest. And um, I think there are interesting questions to be asked about responsibility and climbing and people who are left behind. There's a fantastic book by Maria Coffey. I think it's called. Where the mountain casts its shadow, and it's about the relatives of climbers. It's about people who are left at home, mm-hmm. and what it's like for them, which is a fantastic thing to write about because you know that's a narrative that's overlooked. So I think there are big questions about that, but they, they they're not gender specific. They shouldn't, but they they became so. I think in the in the wake of Alison Hargreaves, she was a symbol for that idea of again, yes, selfishness and irresponsibility, and pursuing your 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 goals at the expense of everything else. But the interesting thing about her story is that part of, you know, obviously as a mother who's climbing, you're also partly, if that's your career, (laughs) you're also partly climbing to support your family as well in the way that anyone in in any risky line of work would be partly doing that work to support their children as well. So it's a very complicated, there are very complicated questions Mm. um, to be asked. And it just became a quite a sensationalist um, it didn't. thing in the media. It. Yeah, yeah,
1: very much so. It's, the sequence sure. is called
0: Black Rocks, isn't it? I will read the one of the last ones in the sequence because I was very wary about. Even though I'm fascinated by Alison Hargreaves, I was really wary about. I didn't want to write in her voice, especially someone who's died so recently. It mm. felt like a real responsibility to be writing about her, and I didn't want people to think that I was trying to ventriloquise her, take, take her voice on. So I, I wrote in the U form, the second person, and I sort of decided that I was almost writing letters to her or postcards or something like that, however daft that sounds. So maybe I'll read a poem that's called Dear Alison because it brings out that idea of address and feeling like you're trying to write to somebody who understands the same landscapes as you. Dear Alison, when I make slow patterns on a route called Namanlos... I'm writing to you. Late afternoon and stage is a postcard to your loss, stamped with a daytime moon. The midges are small handwriting. Below, my friends lean intricate as lettering. I write to you because your imprints everywhere across the landscapes leaned on page. I know I'll never climb as high as you or hold my nerve, and you'd have laughed to see my tight-knit fears. I understand the curve of one low edge can be enough to spend a lifetime on, and if you'd had a lifetime, maybe you'd have turned to face Parent North, this long-abandoned storyline. Maybe you'd have picked up where we all leave off. And another one. I'll read the one about because we talked about it—the North Face of the Iger—and yeah. um, so the the Iger. The, the North Face is, is called the Nordwand, um, but it's been nicknamed the Maudwand uh, mm-hmm. to 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 indicate how dangerous it is. Uh, but this poem's just called Nordwand, and as I mentioned, she climbed the Iger when she was pregnant. Below the white spider, you clench yourself into a ball, your unborn child held deep inside. You wish that you could reach beneath your skin and hold the baby's fist in yours, but you can only curl into the Iger's mist cupped in a belly of enfolding snow, stiff-limbed, as if the cold could cradle you, your eyes bright glass, the wind a lullaby, its calm voice calling you into the world, and Stonefall answering, not yet.
1: You know, I I learned from reading um, uh, her entry on Wikipedia. Mm, mm that her son, Tom Ballard, mm-hmm. uh, the one that she carried for climbing, mm-hmm. is now himself a mountaineer. Yeah, and, and a very he, good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's He's, he's reclaimed, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that's fascinating, that idea of sort of passing it on to the next generation and the legacy.
0: Well, I believe um, her children did come with her to base camp, actually, quite a few, you know, on quite a few trips. And so it was it was a family thing. Mm-hmm. They, they were part of the... The journey as well and I think you do you pick up on those you you, know, you pick up up on that, that sense of being most yourself or most at home in the mountains yeah. and that's how I feel about like, on a much much smaller scale about um, rock climbing and about hill walking and all the things that I get inspiration from and in some cases get whole poems from in Derbyshire that very much comes from my dad and from family and from, from yeah being exposed to that for an early age as mm. well Almost like muscle memory,
1: isn't it? As you say, a lot of the poems deal with mountaineering Mm. and and, and female uh, mountaineers Mm. of the past and and recent past, but not the entire collection. There's many other sort of aspects. There's a a roll call of sort of um, female um, characters that have been kind of blotted out a little Mm. bit. So there's Catherine Switzer. Now, she's Mm. a really fascinating character because she ran in the Boston Marathon in the 1960s when women weren't allowed.
0: That's right, and they tried to manhandle her, that's an appropriate phrase, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, to, to get her out of the race. Um, again, that was one of those things of being taken by the ridiculousness of it. I mean, as somebody who runs marathons myself, that's my main kind of distance and it's it's like, um, it's almost like feeling like um, as a woman, having, getting, when you go to vote, this sense of what other people have gone through to enable you to do that? I get that with marathon running. Actually, I think the 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 things that people have done to to give me the the, the right or the yeah the ability to run this particular race. I always think of Catherine Switzer mm. then, and yeah, it's another one of those things that you have to laugh. They they used to say before uh, women were allowed to run marathon distances. They were worried that if uh, a woman ran um, a marathon, her uterus might fall out. And <laughs> I, so I decided with that poem to to try and take that ridiculous conceit to its illogical conclusion and sort of um, yeah play around with, with, with the di- ridiculous the ridiculousness of it all, I guess. Um, and even even I remember in my lifetime as a runner, there have been milestones. like when I was a teenager, I remember women were allowed to run steeplechase at competitive events for the first time. You saw all the steeplechase records. For long distances being broken by women, because it was a new event for them, that was another event that it had been thought that women probably shouldn't run, or it was inadvisable for them to run. But you wonder what
1: offended, like the chap who tried to manhandle, um, Switzer off the course. What is it that's so terrible about this? You know, what is it that that really aggravated them?
0: I suppose um, some of it is the idea that you're protecting this misinformed idea that you're. I say yeah. protecting yeah, yeah, yeah. someone from, from something or protecting, but maybe there's also an element, I tried to suggest in the poem, I think there's an element of of how dare she, you know the an element of fear perhaps, or mm. feeling threatened which may underlie some of these things so yeah there's a roll call of people like that in the book as
1: yeah as there's, there's, there's Lillian um, uh Bellocca? Yes, yeah. Sounds almost Italian. Bellocca, something yes. like that, Italian sounding. Uh, and um, I was going to say about Switzer and, and about Bellocca as well, um, it's just as well there wasn't social media then because yeah. they'd have been trolled something terrible. Yes. But in fact, in the absence yeah. of social media, what there was was media. Yes. <laughs> and so Delocca really got uh, we should well will you explain who she was and then um, why she incurred such a terrible reaction from the media.
0: Yeah, um, Lillian Delocca who in some is, is an Italian name her husband Charlie was Italian and um, had Italian ancestry. Um she was a fishwife in Hull and in the late 60s the the old triple trawler disaster when three ships sank in really close succession. Uh, Lil decided to campaign for better safety legislation on the trawlers. She gathered some support from other women but it started off just her on her own um, going out on, on protest and trying to stop the ships from leaving without adequate equipment. Um, she went all the way to Downing Street, she met Harold Wilson <laughs> um, and she did succeed in getting the legislation changed. It was a it was a victory in that way but she, she received a lot of opposition both from the community in, in Hull, she got death threats I believe, from Mm. people who thought she was meddling and from the media who just ridiculed her because she was quite a large woman, she was 17 stone. Mm. That was their way of getting at her, to to belittle her. I'll read two poems about Big Lil and the Triple Trawler disaster and they're set in Hull. The first one's called Lil's Dream. I dreamed Hesel Road was a river, thundering by night to the North Sea and all the men I'd tried to warn were channelled from their pubs and houses Fists still clutching glasses, papers, kitchen knives. I lay down in the waters like a boat, but I was buffeted. I zigzagged after them, face down, my body bloated in the stream. I could still see, and knew the shoals beneath weren't fish, but scraps of hulls and decks, dead radios. The riverbed was lined with messages, scribbled goodbyes to everything we'd not yet lost, to all we could not carry. Would not need, where water planned on taking us. And the second little poem is written as a kind of call and response. It's in couplets. I was thinking about some of the things that uh, people might have said to Lil and how she might have answered them uh, if she chose to speak in rhyme. It's called Lil's Answer. Don't speak until you're spoken to. The ocean's given me my cue. You shouldn't raise your voice outdoors. My words live in the crowd's applause. This is a matter for the men. Go home. I'll stand until I'm frozen down to bone. Your accent's making you a laughingstock. Long as they listen, let them mock. They'll mute you, Lil. They'll throw you out to sea. They'll have to gag this town to silence me.
1: So is it easier to write about characters from history that you feel a rapport or connection mm. with than it is to actually write about people you actually know in real life or, or even yourself
0: <laughs> it's probably a bit less risky <laughs> um, yeah in some sense I find that interesting about I've, I've written quite a lot about mountaineering and climbing poetry and why it seems easier to write about mountains as symbols perhaps mm. than it is to write about the act of climbing something that's very difficult to paraphrase and that's almost I always think a climb is like a set of instructions for the body you have to do it um, to, to really understand it um, and so i think it's it it can be easier to imagine other people in the landscapes that you love than it can be to think about yourself in them. think about all those things again going full circle back to what we talked about at the start those those things that aren't on the map those emotional connections with with place that i often struggle to to do anything other than feel them <laughs> you, you you go to the place and you you experience it but whenever i try and put it into words there's there's a gap between what I experience and what I can say about it, so sometimes I think the distance of trying to imagine somebody else uh, in another era, even or, mm. or you know, or Alison Hargreaves, a, a, a really talented climber in those landscapes, instead, um, gives you the, the distance from which to observe them properly, mm. rather than being so emotionally connected to the space you, you can't describe it. So, yeah, I do find it easier, I think. Yeah. But but also, of course, you know, you're know, you always writing about yourself and your own experiences as well, even when you're writing about others, even if it's another era or another time.
1: I wanted to finish mm-hmm. by asking you about uh, your PhD, yes. which is on <laughs> metaphor, contemporary yeah. poetry and neuroscience. It's yeah. a nice trio. Uh, and I wanted to ask about because I read another interview with you, in which mm-hmm. is, I think you said that... Part of it, at least, is based on your response to the work of the great Scottish poet, Norman McCaig. So, mm. you know, this is a Scottish poetry like? but I'd be yeah. remiss not to ask you about that.
0: I've been in love with Norman McCaig's poetry ever since I started to read poetry. Mm. My, my dad introduced me to his work and I just think he's, well he is, isn't he? He's one of the greatest poets of all time, I, mean, I never tire of, of reading McCaig and um, his acute Landscape imagery, his his way of yeah, he can do that thing that I can't do of capturing a landscape and what it what it signifies um, um to the, to people who love it. He's so good at that, and um, so I, I kind of wanted an excuse to write about him. And I thought mm. metaphor was a really interesting thing to look at in his work because he's he's often proclaiming that he he doesn't trust metaphors. He thinks they're inadequate. He thinks they're particularly metaphors about the natural world. They're a human presumption. They're, they're us projecting things onto the the natural world and anthropomorphizing everything, but yet he's so good at them. He has these amazing, as I said, acute visual images. Like in a poem, like movements where everything, mm. every animal's move is is so brilliantly captured in in metaphor. I got very interested in the idea of having this facility for something that you also distrust the idea of lang- um, language's inadequacy in some ways. So that led me to reading a lot of popular neuroscience, thinking about how. Um, neuroscientists have tried to approach the mysteries of metaphor and um, and locate you know what what happens in your brain when you read a particular kind of metaphor whether it's a uh, what they call a dead metaphor or something that's that's um, used so much that we don't really treat it as if it's a novel thing anymore you know like broken heart that's a dead metaphor mm-hmm. we don't think of it as metaphorical so much because it's such a turn of phrase and um, compared to a really novel unusual metaphor that you might get in a poem and that just led me to broader questions about whether poets and neuroscientists are essentially concerned with the same fundamental mysteries about consciousness and what makes us human and whether scientists and, I think mean, it sounds like a very simple question really, um, scientists and poets might be looking at the same kinds of issues just from very different standpoints, and that sounds very obvious now that I say it, but I've spent three years, <laughs> three years thinking about it and it was an absolute joy to spend that much time on the those questions, not least because I got to spend three years rereading the cake. And that's it
1: for another episode of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. Time for some thank yous. Um, thank you number one goes to Helen Moore for coming in and talking to us, thank you Helen. And thank you number two goes to uh, my dear friend and musician Will Campbell who does the music at the start and end of the show. And thank you number three goes to you for listening to this podcast. Um, If you're interested in what the Poetry Library gets up to between podcasts, you can always check out our website for our latest news. Uh, The website address, if you don't know it, is www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We do social media. We do Twitter. We have a Twitter account, at By Leaves We Live. Uh, We have a Facebook page. I'm sure you know how to find that. Just go on to Facebook and type in Scottish Portrait Library. You'll end up at our Facebook page. And um, we do Instagram as well. And I think our Instagram handle is SPLScotland. So we'll be back in a fortnight with another podcast. And um, in time on a tradition, it'd be nice to finish with a last poem by Helen Moore. So here she is introducing it.
0: I mentioned about getting my love of landscape from my dad and from those kind of things I'll, I'll read a poem that I wrote for him, it's about a heart operation mm-hmm. uh, that he's had a few times called an ablation which is spelt with an A but when I first heard the word I thought it was spelt with an O um, and that turns out that, that, that word means something else mm. and I'm always interested in those things in poems as well, those words that echo other ones or that have the ghost of another word in them, ablation inside the northern general they're trying to burn away a small piece of your heart I want to know which bit, how much, and what it holds. My questions live between what doctors call the heart and what we mean by it. Wide is the gap between brain and mind. And in our lineage of bypassed hearts, we should be grateful for the literal. I know my heart is your heart. Good for running, not much else. And later, as you sit up in your borrowed bed, I get the whole thing wrong. Call it oblation, Offering or sacrifice. As if you'd given something up, as if their tiny fire was ritual and we could warm by it. Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us
1: on Facebook.